This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm joined by my good colleagues, Dr. Crystal and Chris KP. Good morning, people. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Ready for, ready for an hour of amazing science? It's going to be big. It's going to be big. Look, we have a very complicated show today, uh, folks. We're going to try and uh, link up to the very corners of the Earth, being Antarctica and the United States. Probably a bit unfair on the United States. They're, not, they're kind of more in the middle. But uh, we do hopefully have on the line Amy Shearer Title, who is uh, – many of you will have um, seen her on the Pluto in the Minute YouTube videos that NASA have put out. Amy, can you hear us? I can, yes. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Now, you're located somewhere um, somewhere way out in the middle of the desert at the moment. Is that right? <laughs> I am, yes. I am currently sitting in a minivan in the New Mexico desert waiting for the wind to die down to launch a rocket. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're in a radio studio in Melbourne. It's cloudy. Um, 22 degrees. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. Now, look, you, you've been um, sort of... Uh, rocketed into into uh, the the area of fame lately with the new horizons missions because i think a lot of people have been watching and enjoying your pluto in a minute um youtube videos which are just jam-packed mm-hmm. with um with content now we have a bit more than a minute today so you can speak a little bit slower <laughs> um T- tell us first of all how did you get involved in this because it's quite extraordinary to be um to be an embedded nasa journalist Sorry, I lost you for a second there. Could you just quickly repeat the question? Yeah, how did you get involved in the Pluto in the Minute video series? Ah, right. Um, so so it all, it all comes down to uh, Dr. Alan Stern, who is the principal investigator of the New Horizons mission. Um, I actually met Alan at um, a dust conference, of all places, mm-hmm. about four years ago. And um, it was a, this, this new media workshop where they introduced uh, non-traditional journalists to scientists based on a mission. And he had uh, the student desk counter out of uh, the University of Colorado Boulder, which is where he, he is um, on New Horizons. So that's sort of how I, how I met him. And then, you know, fast forward to last August, or sorry, last October, rather, um, he called me and said, you know, I, I learned something the other day in, in doing simulation for New Horizons Encounter. It's that scientists can't write. Um, scientists, you know, are brilliant, but scientists can't necessarily translate what it is that they're doing for the layperson to really understand. So we said, you know, instead of trying to teach his scientists how to write, he figured he should just bring in some writers who know how to science, and then ask me if I would like to be one of those writers. And I, I believe my answer was a, a slightly more profane version of, of course I would. <laughs> I've never, I mean, it's just, <laughs> the, the idea of the sudden was being offered the chance to be a part of this of this mission in any way i mean it's as a writer i mean you would never get to you know be where the action is and be on the inside and it was just i was just over the moon uh, so excited about it um so then the the video series actually came up because i wasn't totally sure what i should be doing as one of those writers who can science um so i have this i have my own youtube channel it's been yep. growing and um it's, it's something that um just, you know, having been connected with the science team and, and a little bit, Alan had seen you and said, you know, what you what you do on video is quite good. And I said, well, 
I want to do something with this. I want to somehow capture whether it's sort of behind the scenes interview, science team, or you know whatever. And then um, the, the working with NASA, figuring out how to do it without saying, you know, oh, we've given this one person special access. Um, I developed this idea for Pluto in a minute, which would effectively be what I do with space history on my own channel, but about Pluto and New Horizons for NASA and the Applied Physics Lab, which mm. uh, ran the new or is continuing to run the New Horizons mission, and that's. That's sort of how it came out. And it was one of those things where I thought, this is excellent, and I'm so excited. And then by the end of the month, I realized, like, turning around one video a day for 31 days is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, especially when, I, you know, I spent a couple of days in D.C. Uh, helping with press conferences and, um, you know, during encounter fly, like the flyby days, uh, I was, you know, hosting live events for, for the people who actually came on the lab, and it was just sort of front-loading stuff to make time for all that. It was just, it was rough, but it was also really fun. I learned way more than I think I would have learned had I just been doing press releases because I got to dig into things like how do you design the trajectory to go to Pluto? Mm. So I sat down with uh, mm. with the uh, Yangping Guo who actually designed the trajectory for like an hour, and it was just awesome. So like really, you know, the science team really got to trust me, which was so nice. Mm. So I mean, you you are without a doubt a, an absolute space junkie, and we'll get on to your um, talk a bit about your upcoming book soon. But you, I mean, you must have been like a kid in a candy store with these people because the videos you put out were quite content rich so how sort of you mentioned the um, trajectory stuff but how much did you have in terms of access to the other people involved i mean a lot it was it was nice. I mean, so so the way we were set up at the Applied Physics Lab is every the four uh, theme teams on the horizon set: geology and geophysics, atmospheres, plasma and particles, and uh, composition. They all had had rooms, and we all had access to everything. We could sort of you know wander on in and just see what they were doing. And I got to know them enough that I could kind of sit down, and I would honestly just like sit in and listen in on conversations and, and write down my questions so I didn't want to interrupt. Um, and I also got to sit in on a couple of planning meetings and trajectory navigation navigation meetings and um you know i got i actually went in oh my gosh i went in at four five o'clock one morning um to get the signal down on the last trajectory correction burn about five days out from pluto um just to just to see what that was like and you know actually see the team in mission ops led by everyone in the, the new breakout star alice bowman who is such a such a doll she's wonderful um so it was, it, it was really just interesting to get to get that real, real insider insider look and sort of actually meet these people um, and get to know them not as abstract names on papers, but as what they were actually doing. Hmm. Amy, uh, the New Horizons mission has has changed everything we once thought about Pluto. I mean, we're going from something that was, you know, not even considered to be a planet that it was geologically uninteresting, that it, you know, it was just a rock. Um, you know, the amount of information that we've we've gained over the past few weeks has just been incredible. What for you has yeah. been one of the most surprising and exciting discoveries? In a minute. <laughs> In a minute. <laughs> um, I think the most the most surprising thing for me, um, I really was expecting, and apologies to anybody who's worked on a mission to Mercury, but I really expected Pluto to be as boring as Mercury, you know, just like a, a heavily cratered, atmosphereless, I even knew I had a bit of an atmosphere from Earth, but, you know, nothing super exciting. I thought it would sort of be like, oh, this is really neat. What do we do now? So to see the surface variation, to see the sort of these smooth areas, these mountains, oh my God, the mountains, uh, the backlit uh, picture of the atmosphere with the haze layers, it was just sort of like, this is, this is 
a real, I mean, I, I'm sort of, I don't exist on the planet, no planet debate because I'm not a planetary scientist, but I could just look at it and just think, oh my God, this is like a really cool planet. <laughs> I don't really care what you call it for me, but I just think it's amazing. So it's, for me, it's, it's just so exciting to actually start to see what's happening with it. And, and I mean, we're just scraping the surface. There's like 16 months of data to come. I can't wait. Mm. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you about that because you you finished the Pluto in a minute series and and I think yeah. at the time when it finished there was an estimate of some five percent of the data having come back. What what are the expectations yeah. of the um, of the mission uh, staff with regards to that extra data? I mean, are they are they hoping for the same wow factor f- for the final ninety five percent that we got for the first five? Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure, and I don't want to speak for them, but I think. Um I mean, it is the case that we're going to get higher resolution images still. You know, we, we don't have the best views of Pluto yet. Um, we're just, it's, it's more that they're just going to get so much more. We've gotten a little bit of everything, but once we, once the team gets the full set of science data back down and can really start analyzing it, and it's all going to come together, you know, it all plays off each other, of course. Um, you know, I think, I think you could say that we're going to get the wow factor only because we're going to get all of it. And once you get it all, you'll get a full picture of Pluto. And that's what's going to be so exciting. And that's like two years away um, or more. But it's just every little bit that you're going to get down is going to be something new. Mm. And that's great. I mean, I guess that one of the advantages of doing uh, your videos in one minute is that you can cover a lot of different topics. To what extent do you dictate what those topics are? And to what extent do the New Horizons team go, you know, I've got an idea, I've got an idea, I've got an idea? Um, there was actually a lot after um, after I started doing the, the videos and sort of it was me kind of thinking, you know, all right, well, this is kind of interesting. And everything had to go through uh, P.I. Allen Stern, of course, so it was, you know, he, he would say yes or no, yes, that's interesting, sure. no, that's, that's not the most interesting. But after a while, it sort of got to the science team saying, you know what's actually really neat and that I think people should know about and that you should do is, is this weird thing, like, uh, you know, the, uh, the navigation update or, you know, something. Mm. Um and then it and then it just became, you know, we were all sort of in the, the press room and someone would say something and I'd think, This is really cool. I wanna know more about that and I think everyone should know more about that. So it was sort of it really was a team a team effort. It was sort of, you know, what all I wanna do really is make sure that everybody can access and understand what it is that the science team is doing because what they're doing is so phenomenal. So I was just so happy to be able to showcase not only their work but the things that they really wanted to showcase. Yeah, nice. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of stuff that's happened over the last few years where I think there would be, you know, a big advantage in presenting the work in a similar way. I mean, the Cassini mission of Saturn, of course, is ongoing, and another example yeah. where we seem to get a new surprise every month or, or something spectacular every yeah. month. Um, I mean, how much do you think NASA will move towards this mo- new mode of sort of delivery of information? Because it is, in the past, you know, their website's been very much about, um, you know, you get on and you read it, but that sort of really YouTube-based, more you know, casual presentation style. Are they are they shifting towards that for um, greater sort of in, input of their their stuff to the public? I, I mean, I have no idea. I know they do do video content, but I know they don't do too much of it, or at least not that I see. But um, uh, I would I would like to see more of it because I think there is a whole. Uh, I mean, apologies to my fellow millennials and those down there. I mean, there is a shift of people who don't really want to read mm. um, and who mm. just want to look at a pretty picture with a caption or watch a video, and they don't really have to work for the information. So that's and that's one of the reasons why I thought videos 
Well, I personally turned to videos and brought it to New Horizons because I thought it would be a great way to educate people without really having to have them do any work. Mm. Which sounds horrible, but it's, I mean, it really is just sort of, you want people to learn about it. Yeah. Now, you haven't completely... You haven't completely gone to the dark side because you've um, you've finished a, a book which is coming out hopefully uh, just after Christmas. Now, uh, I, yeah. I'm not sure how many um, people your age do write books about pre-NASA space flight. Is that a is that an uncommon thing? Do you think, Amy? Um, I think it's. I mean, I think it's uncommon in sort of the popular circles in terms of, uh, you know, the, the diehard space history nerds, the historians, those mm. in academia definitely know about a lot of a lot of the things, if not, you know, probably everything um, that I do talk about in the book. But the popular histories of the space age don't really get into the fact that there was a lot going on in space flight before there was a NASA to yeah. be launching that they the space. Um, and for me, it's just sort of like that context and really understanding where space flight comes from. It's not only so fascinating to really understand the roots of it, but to really make you appreciate what it is that we're doing now. You know, this didn't just kind of pop up as like a fun thing to do. This has deep roots going back. I mean, you can go back so far. You can go back to the, the ancient Chinese uh, building powder rockets. If you want, I, I personally just because, you know, I didn't want to write an encyclopedia. Uh, my book begins in 1930. Um, right. And it actually ends the day that NASA opens for business. So mm. there is a, a whole book. Uh, cool. To be written, and I mean, I've, I've sort of gone into this just a little, just a little bit in the book as well. But um, I mean, everything in the book could be a book in and of itself. I mean, there's, it's just a hugely rich, layered history. Um, and I, what I've done, I mean, I, I hope <laughs> is to just make it so that it's accessible and exciting to people who don't know about it because it is, it is wonderful and it is a part of our shared human history as well. Mm. Now, tell us the uh, the title of the book, just so everyone knows um, that they can keep a lookout for it. Yep. <laughs> I should I should say that, shouldn't I? Uh, the title <laughs> of the book is Breaking the Chains of Gravity. Um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> the great title. You, yeah, I mean, if you do say so yourself. No, it, it's, a, <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a good title. Now, you have to tell us what you're doing out there in the middle of the desert, though, waiting for a rocket to launch. Is that just for fun? Yeah. No, this is not fun, and I, I, as you bring it up, actually, I've only got about one minute, because we're actually about ready to launch, and I do need to run. So I, if, I can, if I can say goodbye. So what I'm doing is actually it's for a documentary about rockets, um, and i got to go launch a rocket. I'm really sorry. The wind just broke, and I have to go. That's fantastic. Amy, thanks so much for talking to us, and we will speak to you again on the program, no doubt. Good luck with your rocket launching. <laughs> sorry to dash off here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been really wonderful, and I'd absolutely love to come back and talk at length some other time. Thank you so much. Sounds great, Amy. Have a great Sunday. Good luck. Bye-bye. <laughs> Take care. There we go. She's off to launch a rocket. How many of our guests have said that over the last 20-odd years? But it's going to become the ultimate excuse, isn't it? Sorry, i got to go to launch a rocket. So I know. Can't come that day. I'm launching a rocket. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can use it. Uh, we're going to take a... Oh, The sorry. thing I love about Amy's videos are they just highlight the incredible diversity yeah. that Pluto has yeah. given us. Like, yeah. um, and the moons and the just the discoveries. And I just think that um, she's a great communicator. She's yeah. very good. I mean, there's no doubt that um, NASA have seen the... Uh, I think it's called Vintage Space yes. YouTube channel that she has, where she talks about a lot of 
other stuff space and a very good communicator in short bursts mm. which people can handle and the Pluto in the Minute series was just like that so we're very happy to have had a chat to her and I think um, if you haven't had a look at them folks it's well worth watching the whole series of the Pluto in a Minute videos because each one actually teaches you quite a lot in a way that's very very easy for you know the non-initiated non-scientist non-specialist to to understand and get excited about I you know even someone who knows a lot about it I was pretty excited just hearing about the new data as it came in each day and and the stuff that they put on so hopefully there'll be a new series coming out soon we don't know and we'll be back in a moment we're going to do a little bit of news after the break and then we will be hopefully speaking to Beth Healy, who we have spoken to before in the program. She's down at Concordia Base in Antarctica. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. 3RRR. Three we are going to give you a little bit of science news now while we... Um Fill in some time. I think we're going to... Uh, bet, <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> it is actually it's, a program. We, we it, did actually yeah. put something together. That's what the show's for. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. fill in other people's time with some enjoyment. Um, we, we hopefully are going to talk to Beth Healy from Antarctica in about uh, seven or eight minutes, but until then, we're going to give you some science news. Dr. Crystal? Well, people around Melbourne town have kind of been complaining about the fact that it's winter, and I'm just like... <laughs> People, our hemisphere is tilted away from the sun. Yeah. What do you expect? We're at 38 degrees. That's we, nasty. We've, we've got seasons, you know. Yes, yeah, one, one, one of the best known phenomena we have, actually. Yeah. Seasons, yeah. you know. Um, and, and I actually love that. Like, one of the things I love about Melbourne is the piles of leaves. You know, we're scuffing oh, through the leaves. It's beautiful. That kind of led me to think. Dog turds aside. Well, you know, it, it's one of those kind of beautiful memories, you know, deciduous trees, you know, scrunching through the leaves in the park. But where do they go? Each year, there is 35. <laughs> billion tonnes of leaf litter deposited on the surface of our planet. About half of it's in my backyard at the moment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I will pick it up. I will pick it up. And so this week, um, some research that was published in Nature Communications led by a team of researchers from Imperial College London looked into the role of earthworms. Yeah, because of the London plane trees. That's as, why. <laughs> as ecosystem engineers. Oh, nice. Who play an important role in breaking mm. down leaf litter. Because one of the things about it is that, that plants can't move and they need to defend themselves against being eaten by making you know their leaves quite unfriendly to eat yeah. and so they put high levels of compounds in them called um, polyphenols which make them you know unattractive and slightly toxic to eat so how is it that earthworms who are so important in in pulling these leaves into the soil and breaking them down and recycling all the carbon back into the earth how do they deal with these really high levels of polyphenols and so these researchers wanted to find out well what is it that that makes earthworms special and able to do this so they they, they did a um a they use a technique called metabolomics, um, which is where you study all the metabolites, which is the small molecules that are present in the gut fluid of earthworms. How they harvested this gut fluid, I probably don't need to know. But they um, they analysed it um, using uh, mass spectroscopy and a whole bunch of techniques to sort of say, well, where are the where are the unique and interesting molecules in gut earth in earthworms' guts that make them be able to deal with these chemicals? And they found all these unique molecules, and they called them drylodefensins, and they worked out that these drylodefensins actually form kind of like a protective surfactant layer along the intestines of the earthworms and actually protect them um, from, from these toxic chemicals in the plants. And why this is really fascinating is that there's lots of links into potential medicinal applications. Mm-hmm. You know, you, um, there are some Chinese traditional medicines that are actually based on dried up earthworm preps. And so you might think, are there these, you know, we've discovered this whole range of new molecules. We know that for the earthworms, they have a particular function in, in protecting against, um, 
against toxic molecules in plants, but could they have other medicinal properties, which is really quite another fascinating area. And, and the other thing is that there's a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, mm. in, a, in a worm, they actually have to put a lot of energy and effort into making these compounds because of the large amounts of leaves they chew through. I mean, I think that more than one or two percent of the actual earthworm is this molecule. Well, <laughs> wow. That's a lot. That's <laughs> a yeah. lot. And the scientists worked out that because, you know, if you think about all the earthworms in the earth, for every one person on the planet, there's about one kilogram of these drylodefensins in the, in the soil in the earthworms to be able to deal with all those leaves. That's a lot. That's a lot. It is a lot. I, I don't want to know what the corresponding number is for actual earthworms. Because if it's 1% it's 1 kilo, oh, now that's freaking me that's out. A, that's a lot of worms. That's a lot of kilos that's of worms kilos. down so there, So for every people. one person, there's 100 kilos of worms. Yeah. Is that mess right? Yeah. I think it, it sounds is. right. I think it's right. It's, it's about right. Anyway. So that's pretty close to being mass for mass. Yeah. One person to, you know, equivalent mass of worms. Disturbing. Wow. This is. <laughs> It's quite phenomenal when you start doing the maths. Anyway, so I thought that was a fascinating piece of research um, that not only answers the question of how do earthworms deal with toxic chemicals in leaves, but also it maybe opens up some new bio-discovery for um, for Mm. new uh, bioactive molecules. Or a food source, potentially. Eat those worms up, yum, yum, yum. Yeah, well, there's protein. Chris KB. Might as well go eat worms. Yes, exactly. Because it'll, yes, it's good for you. Never seen a worm with a cold. Yeah. So it might be healthy for you. Well, where would they sneeze? <laughs> oh, all yeah. very uh, unpleasant idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, look, I, I'm not going to step that far away from, uh, from worms, I don't think. Uh, because, you see, biomass, by, by, by biomass, about 60% of terrestrial biomass um, is insects. And about half of that is ants. Now, Good old ants. Put that together. Yeah, you know, this is living matter. That's a lot of ants. But of course, we know that there are. You know, there are some. They're not evenly distributed around the world. Let me pop a question you right now without notice. Estimate the number of species of ants. Estimate to the nearest ten that are in Greenland. Mm, thousand. Three hundred. None. But not guesses. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> just re- I, there's no ants just... in Greenland. There are no native ants in Greenland. What about travellers? And what I know about... you're thinking. You're thinking that sounds like well, that sounds like bunk, young man. Well, what fills the role of ants then? I don't know. I know, and I thought the same thing. Who does the so job? I am. I am, as we speak, looking at antmaps.org, which is an interactive ant map, and there are, it's all colour coded, and you can you can put in different subspecies and genre and do all kinds of things and compare different regions. And I noticed that Greenland was white, and it wasn't just because of the snow. You go there, and it quite clearly says zero ant species. And there's a few other spots dotted around the world like that, but very few. And I thought the same thing. I'm going, hang on, ants do stuff. What does that stuff in Greenland? And I haven't answered that question yet, but I'm <laughs> looking into it. But it's very interesting that they've got this wonderful sort of earthy red colour for really high ant density. Queensland. Oh, really? Yeah. And some wells, actually. Yeah, 1,500 different species in Queensland alone. 1,500 species yeah. of ants uh-huh. in Queensland. Mm. <laughs> Where did they get all this data from? Well, this is the cool thing. So this is, this is from, from and for ant researchers, and they've been gathering it for Yonks, and a bunch of, um, a bunch of researchers decided to put this together. You know, researchers from Hong Kong and, uh, and from Japan decided to put this stuff together in, you know, for their own benefit, basically, for other researchers. And so it's been out there for, you know, in this form for weeks now for, for researchers to go, yeah, this is great, we can, we can compare our data, we can add more data to it. They've just released it to the media and now to the public. So, in fact, it's online. If you want to go and look where the ants are, you can. But it's from researchers with their own little tiny bit of specialist ant research to chuck into the pond, and now they've got a great big fat global map. I'm pretty sure that it's a matter of time before somebody who's researching ants in Greenland goes, 
Hang, Hang on. on. <laughs> <laughs> or, or someone puts a, a photo on, on Facebook, <laughs> what do you call this? It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, surprising, isn't oh, it? Maybe, yeah. maybe they're all invasive species. Maybe there. Exactly, maybe mm. they are. I, yeah. I just don't know well enough. Mm. Or maybe, maybe it's a research project waiting to happen. Well. If, you're, if you're an ant scientist, get your backside to Greenland. Yeah. That's and a, take a scarf. Good advice. And uh, once again, Chris KP has proven he uses the internet inappropriately to find websites that none of us would otherwise find. What was it? Antmap.org. Org. Yep. Antmap.org. Get on and board. Antmaps.org. Oh. Ant- oh, sorry. Antmaps. Yeah, because Ant- Antmap.org is a totally weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to play a track now. We'll be back in just a few moments, hopefully talking to our colleague down in uh, Antarctica. But if not, we've got some other good special stuff for you. So here's some tunes in the meantime. Three triple R. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Einstein and GoGo, folks, and hopefully on the line we have Beth Healy from Concordia, based down in Antarctica. If you basically grab a, a ruler and draw a line down from Adelaide, you should hit somewhere around that spot. Beth, can you hear us? Yeah, hello. How are you going down there? Everything's yeah. We're just coming to the end of the sort of darkness period. So um, ha- how long? Everyone, everyone how long has it? About that. Ha- ha- I can imagine you would be. How long has it been now since you've seen the sun? Um, so we're looking at about a hundred days now since the sun last set here at James Charlie. Um, come up either. The- now we we should uh, Beth, Beth we should just mention to people here the um, the internet down in the uh, Antarctic region is marginally better than in Melbourne. Um, <laughs> we we have problems up here. So so if the the, the signal drops out every now and then we apologise to everyone for that. But um, it is uh, it is a live call, so we're doing our best. Now Beth, um, give us a bit of an idea of what you've been doing because last time we spoke to you, you were just gearing up to start studying some of the the physiological effects of the isolation and the cold and the the lack of light and everything down there knowing that um you're essentially cut off from rescue for quite a few months so give us an idea of what you've been studying there yeah absolutely um um, i guess some of the most interesting ones is um one that we're doing where we're wearing sort of activity watches um and so with and how that's changed over time because our watches can read each other's um, and also where we're choosing to spend all of our, our time sort of free time so whether we're choosing to spend it in more social areas um, or whether we're going to our bedrooms more and spending more time on our own in our offices mm. and, and what, what is it I mean there's only about 20 people down there uh, 13 of us 13 13 <laughs> Yeah, how are you? How are you getting along with those thirteen people? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> uh, I think we've been quite lucky. Like, I think like that. I think um, with the uh, last, we're losing losing you a bit. Mm. We're losing Beth a little bit there. Beth, um, did you start off with thirteen people? I thought it was fourteen last time we spoke. <laughs> I promise. I promise nothing's happened to anyone. <laughs> 
Now, I remember getting a, a little weather report from you recently where you said it was minus 74 degrees C and the windshield factor brought it down to about 104. Are you able to go outside in that weather? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the cold is sort of... Yeah. Now, in in terms of um, uh, shelters around. Yeah, in terms of the the crew. I mean, how how are they all faring given the given the cut off and the isolation and so forth? Is everyone well? Do do you see sort of a have you seen a change over the last five months in in how they're going? I think um, in general everyone's everyone's fine. Um, but <laughs> I think people are, have much shorter temp- uh, tempers than we did right at the beginning of the. Uh, the combination of a few things. We're all very tired now. Um, not having the sun makes you quite lethargic. We're not sleeping as well. And generally, your appetite's a bit reduced as well. Cause it... hmm. um, really. <laughs> um, but having said that, I think um, everyone's coping fairly well. And we had quite a lot of psychological testing before we came down here. So we've not had any sort of major problems with, with anyone. So been quite lucky in that respect. Mm. I think we're all certainly looking forward to get a lot more yeah. when it does. And and when when will you return to your other duties as part of the European Space Agency, Beth? I mean what's what's your sort of transit time out of Concordia? Um well so my replacement's looking to leave Europe around um, I think seventeenth but I'll probably um, stay for a month handover. I'm looking to get home in time for Christmas really. Um, I'll be taking a bit of Hobart um, to get home, flying from Hobart back to Europe. So I'm quite excited for the boat journey. I think it should be quite quite fun. Mm. <laughs> See all the icebergs and penguins and things like that. Indeed. Look, I, I think it's going to be spectacular. We're going to we're going to leave it in a couple of minutes because the the um, the connection's not the best today. Um, it's funny. My colleague Dr. Crystal oh, here okay. was was just telling me that uh, there are only two countries in the world that don't have high speed rail. Australia is one of them, and Antarctica is the is the other. Are there any plans to get that going uh, down there? Not that I'm aware of. No. That's okay. We don't we don't have any plans in Australia either. <laughs> now, one one last thing I wanted to to ask you about is because uh, I know you've posted a couple of things on on Facebook and, and Twitter on this. Um, can you describe, I mean, what's the sky like down there? Because, uh, you know, you have zero light pollution, the air is crisp and and, and relatively uh, clear. Um, you're seeing all sorts of um, patterns due to the sort of the dipping of the magnetic field around the Earth at, where you are. I mean, what, what do you see at night there, or, or I should say at any time of day, given the sun hasn't come up in quite a while? Yeah, I think we're losing, we're losing you there, Beth. We might leave it there. We might try and um, connect up with you again in the coming months when um, the internet's um, hopefully a, a bit better. Yeah, really. And um, good luck. Uh, we hope everything and everyone is well down there, and we'll speak to you again soon. Okay, thanks so much. Sorry about the 
connection. <laughs> no, no problem. You have a very good excuse being where you are. <laughs> you have a very good excuse. Thanks, Beth. That's Beth Healy from the European Space Agency, live from Concordia Base, which I have to say is um, is they've been cut off for like five months. So the fact that they've got internet at all is quite amazing. I just love the fact that the European Space Agency have employed a doctor to work mm-hmm. in Antarctica mm. with the, with the sole purpose to sort of use that population who are in Antarctica as a as a sort of simulation of what might happen if we have a long term post on the moon or on Mars. And some of the experiments that Beth didn't get a chance to talk about today are, are the fact that they're looking at um, people's ability to, um, to their, their, their light, how they, how they respond to low light conditions. Mm. And apparently um, one of the experiments that they're doing down there at the moment is to, um, is to measure people's uh, pupil responsiveness to light over the long winter and see whether or not being in those light, low light conditions actually changes the ability of their eyes to um, respond to bright or low light mm. conditions. So every week um, um, I think Beth me- um, measures their pupil dilation and, and how quickly their eyes can adjust to different levels of brightness. Another thing they're doing is taking brain scans and actually um, seeing whether isolation actually changes your brain um, and to actually look at, you know, scanning um, these people's brains before and after the winter season and then recording, as Beth was saying, through some of their activity trackers and their diaries, you know, their interrupted sleep patterns, their moods, their their blood pressure, their heart rate. How, how do all those extreme mm. physical and psychological conditions actually influence people's health? And I think they're really important questions to answer when we start talking about, you know, what happens on the space station and mm. uh, if we're going to send people on, on long to Mars, to Mars mm. or, or to establish outposts on the moon, we, we do need to know what the effects are of those quite extreme um, environments are on people's health. And so being able to do an experiment you know, on the space station and in Antarctica and compare the results and be able to you know, mimic the conditions of that long-haul space travel I think is, is remarkable. And I, and I love the investment that the European Space Agency is making in having someone like Beth, a medical doctor, down there looking at the effects of isolation on health. Mm. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing too is, you know, we're talking, I think February was the last time they sort of saw the sun down there, and Beth indicated that already there's this sort of, she referred to shortened tempers, I think yes. that's her phrase. Yeah. Um, now, may, maybe that's just because she's prodding and probing everyone every other day. But Maybe because they're listening to her right now. Yeah. <laughs> she can't say much on air. She can't say much on air. But, but, it's, <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting because it does give you... Um, the idea that you know after just five or so months um, this is starting to have quite a significant effect mm. it's about two years to mars mm-hmm. and although concordia base is not large so they're cramped quarters for the 13 of them down there and i'm sure she said there was 14 to start with well anyway, um, you know there was 14 you know, you know she, she only cares about the actual sample size she's got so if someone leaves the sample <laughs> size there's 13 yeah, yeah, we're moving on now next time it'll be seven <laughs> but you know the, any sort of quarters on a, on a trip to mars will be substantially more cramped with even fewer people I, I and, wonder, and harsher I if, conditions so it makes total. I mean, you know, intuitively, it makes sense to me that yeah, that um, people would get shortened tempers, and and you know, personalities and interactions would would differ. But I wonder if it levels out. So I wonder mm. if you sort of go the first six months, that's really hardcore. You know, the next eighteen or whatever on the way to Mars is not so bad. We've learnt how to deal with each other, or whether it just keeps changing the whole way because yeah. that 
is a freaky idea. Yeah. That's, you know, movie uh, waiting to happen. And I guess that's why they're collecting all the data. They've got them doing video diaries and talking about yeah. their moods and their activity trackers and their blood pressure trackers and, you know, all, all the wireless and wearable technology you can have these days, mm. you know, can mm. really give us some amazing insights into that from a, from a, from a data perspective yeah, as yeah, well yeah. as how yeah. people are self-reporting. And I, I think there's a big difference too between this and what they did in the Russian experiment where they just had them in, I think it was called Mars 200 or something oh, like yes, that. Yes. When they Mars, had them, 500. Mars 500. <laughs> they locked three. Sorry, they locked three Russian astronauts in, in a, a box, box. And, and made them pretend to go to Mars. Mars for five hundred. They were back five hundred. They did. They had a daily program of, and they and they got there, and they had the day when they got there, and they had yeah. the day where they turned around and came back, and it was all a simulation. It was like the, the most incredible reality TV. So, yeah. <laughs> but but you still, even in that scenario, you know that yes. three meters on the other side of that wall, there are the human beings, and they'll come in and save your life if you actually yeah. absolutely need it. Whereas down at Concordia Base, it's a small base, and Beth told us this the last time we spoke to her, if if you have a problem, you're screwed. They can't rescue you down well, there. Well, you're they're, isolated. They're not screwed because they train and well, cross-train tra- oh, yeah. all, yeah. all of the people. Because I've, I've spoken to people who've, who've managed Antarctic mm. bases, and they basically say, you know, they retrain the IT guys, the anaesthetist, and they um, retrain the... Honestly, everyone <laughs> has... Oh, that's elite. <laughs> that's scary. <laughs> have, can I just say... I'm sorry, I've got to say, have you tried turning it off and on again? <laughs> But, but that's but that's the thing, right? And I think one day um, this particular base manager was saying to her staff who were, who were you know, doing some sort of um, risky skiing activity, she said, you do know that if you fall over and break your leg, that person is doing your surgery. Yeah. <laughs> so, but if that person's the butcher, I'm okay with that. But the IT guy, yeah. I'm not so sure. He could do neurosurgery, perhaps. <laughs> It would be an interesting coupling of uh, skill sets. Well, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so I think it's also a very um, incredible psychological environment that, mm. you, that you live in because your life is in the hands of those 13 other people every day. Yeah, so don't, yeah. Throw, don't, don't throw a tantrum tent- tent- at them because, you know, today, today it's you being angry, tomorrow it's them doing surgery on you. Well, yeah. Exactly. And so, and so it is that kind of amazing psychological balance where the people that you are, you know, getting tetchy with are also the people who you rely on every day. Yeah. Yeah. It would be interesting because we know in our workplaces there's always someone that you don't, you know, you don't like. I mean, you wonder out of the 13 people, is, is there a someone? That, <laughs> yeah. That'd be an actual job for someone. And would yeah. you go down and be unpopular? I mean, just to spare us the, everybody else. No, it yeah. does sound like a reality TV show. Oh, it does. Yeah. That's, that's where leaving, yeah, yeah, Meerkat Manor. Beat your heart out. This is <laughs> leave the toilet seat up down there, and you've got five months of hell. So hopefully we will be able to go back and speak with Beth on another day when the internet's back up. I bet they're looking forward to their first sunrise. Oh, it'd be amazing. Yeah, because it, it will just—it won't come all the way up either. Yeah, it'll you'll just see it. You'll just see a sliver mm. of it, just a little sliver, and they'll be very exciting. Um, I'm still claiming the problem was at our end. I'm sure it was. I mean, Fine. the internet in Melbourne's not that good. That's true. Um, I know where I live. It's terrible. Um, Did you hear that, NBN Co? Get out there to the burbs. Free Triple R. You are listening to 3 Triple R. if you haven't worked it out. Uh, big apologies for the uh, poor audio quality of the link there to Antarctica, talking to Beth. It's one of the uh, sad aspects of uh, doing these overseas calls sometimes uh, in the faraway corners of the earth. The internet ain't so good. Now, Chris KP, you're yes, involved in this uh, big night out uh, mm. thing for Walter and Hall Institute's uh, massive event. I am, which is awesome, actually. Uh, so this this year, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research celebrates their 100 years. Happy birthday to, to them. You. Yes, which is, a, which is a big achievement. If you try and point to another research institution who's done 100 years, there aren't many of them out well, there. Well, no, there are 
Australia's oldest medical research institute. Well, I mean, in the world, I mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But even in the world, I think it stacks up pretty damn well, pretty actually. Well. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so it's, they're celebrating that with a whole bunch of different events. And, of course, as it happens, it's National Science Week next week, too. So oh. it all the stars are aligning. So Walter and Eliza's big night out will be a thousand kinds of fun. Um, it's uh, it, it's emceed by Paul McDermott, which who knows what he's doing when it comes to emceeing a big, funny event. It's essentially a science quiz night. Um, I've been, as someone who's participating on stage, I've been advised or is it warned that there will be some physical challenges involved <laughs> uh, this is next saturday isn't it this is next saturday night yeah, yeah some cool. physical challenges involved but you yeah. uh, i mean well i mean you're you're a fine figure of a man so i'm sure once, you'll be up to the challenge i was once yeah thank you for saying that that's yeah. very sweet of you mm. <laughs> um there's also uh there's also um the, the opportunity for some science demonstrations to be done not necessarily by people who really know very much about science <laughs> so cool. that could be fun and dangerous um and yes and and one of the reasons that I'm there is because uh, we will be revealing, Ologism will be revealing the brand new, specially written for um, the Walter and Eliza Hall 100 Years song. Oh, wow. Which is, yeah, okay. so it's a brand new thing that's um, happening that night as well. But as I mentioned, it is, that's the, sat- that's the Saturday night. The cool thing about that weekend, and in fact National Science Week in general, is that there's loads on. So the night before that, Market of the Mind happens down on the, on the Yarra, um, which is essentially what it sounds like. It's basically a, a market feel slash circus feel with science stuff. We have a sword swallower this year. Um, Happy Camper Pizza will be there. There's a live bar. There'll be live music and performances. There is an ice sculpture happening at the time. In between that, there's some science, right? Loads of <laughs> Oh, you try and do a sword swallowing without science and you will cut a <laughs> hole in your neck. Yeah. Um, but yes, totally. There will be, there's mm. sorry people down there printing <clears throat> stuff in 3D titanium. There will be um, a, a whole bunch of other scientists from RMIT there. So it, it, that's chockers. Cool. Mel- Melbourne is such a science city. Yeah, if that ain't like enough, there, get online. There's yeah. heaps of cool mm. stuff happening um, as part of the Science in the Square Festival. Yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch of... I think they're showing Contagion, Gattaca and Outbreak um, on yes. the 20th, 21st and 22nd of August down all there. All good films. Yeah, all good films or with all good science. Um, it's a pretty rich science time of year, actually. Yeah, around. there's yeah. heaps of stuff going on for National Science. In fact, National Science Week has become National Science Month. August <laughs> is just jam-packed with cool and groovy science activities. Fantastic stuff yeah. well um i should just mention that today is the 70th anniversary of the um nuclear bomb that hit uh, atomic bomb that hit uh, nagasaki mm. um, a long time ago and we just mm. went past august 6th of course which was the anniversary of hiroshima as well so still a lot of those bad boys hanging around so um mm. weapons i mean and it's uh yeah not a good thing but uh, anyway something to think about <laughs> from us a big goodbye thank you dr crystal always a pleasure great having you here and chris kp it was good having you too that was a hoot thanks mate <laughs> <laughs> sweet of you <laughs> you've been listening to einstein and gogo on three triple r folks we'll talk to you again next week until then remember science is everywhere and have a fabulous weekend you're listening to three triple r this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au